Law nerds, welcome to another episode of Boom Lawyered, a Rewire Radio podcast hosted by the legal journalism team that would email you chocolate chip cookies if we had that technology. I'm Imani Gandhi. And I'm Jess Piclo. Rewire.news is dedicated to bringing you the best reproductive rights and social justice news, commentary, and analysis on the web. And the Team Legal Podcast is part of that mission. So thank you so much for listening and subscribing. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate it. And today we're going to delve into some of the state abortion restrictions that are teed up in 2018. We're also going to explain some of the legal strategy behind the latest attempts to undo Roe versus Wade. And, and this is huge, you get to meet Rewire's research assassin, Bree Shea. Well, it's a new year, and with it comes a whole new set of abortion restrictions anti-choice lawmakers plan to trot out. We're already seeing fetal homicide bans, 20-week abortion bans, 15-week abortion bans, D&E abortion bans, and even total abortion bans. That's a lot of bans. It's so many bans. It's one ban too many, I'd say. And if there's one person at Rewire who knows about all of the bans, all of the bans, like literally all of the bans, it's all our the bans. database. <laughs> it's our <laughs> database whisperer, Brie Shea. When it comes to the types of abortion restrictions that are out there and which state is trying to pass what garbage, there's probably no one in the entire country that knows more about it than Brie. And that's not an exaggeration. Not fake news. Not fake news. All live, real, true news. So please give a warm welcome to to Brie, it's okay to clap wherever you are unless you are in your car driving, in which case keep your hands on the wheel. So Brie, hello. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. That was a, quite an introduction. <laughs> well, you're, you're quite a research assassin. Uh, so tell us, what's up with all of these bands, Brie? Okay, where to start? So we're about a month in, like you said, to the new year. We have basically over 100 anti-choice bills so far. Yikes. Um, And it covers everything from targeted regulation of abortion providers to funding restrictions. But we're going to talk about the bans. So fetal homicide. We have about six states which have introduced fetal homicide bills. Three of those states, Indiana, New Hampshire, Virginia, relate to crimes affecting a fetus. While four of those states, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Missouri, are basically just total abortion bans. So let's talk a second about the crimes relating or affecting a fetus. What do you mean by that? Uh, Basically, like, if there's any ban, if there's any uh, a crime that happens, a manslaughter, any kind of a a misdemeanor or a an assault charge, but if it affects, if it harms the fetus in any way, these bills will either create a new law for that, or they will provide increased penalties if it doesn't just harm the pregnant person; it harms the fetus. So like if there was a, you know, so like if there was like a car accident, you know, if I, if I plowed into a car right. and a pregnant person is driving and that person loses the baby as a result, I can get an increased penalty for harming not just the person, like the person driving, but that person's child or unborn, unborn baby as anti-choicers like to say. Is that correct? Right. Exactly. Okay. But then there are these bills that you said are total abortion bans. What do these look like besides disaster? That's, that's pretty much accurate right there. Disaster. Um <laughs> They're just, yeah, they're complete abortion, no matter what. Missouri, I know I said Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri right now. Missouri always has them. I also want to add Oklahoma might be on that list. 
Okay. I, I don't want to say super. I don't want to say for sure, but they always have one, at least one every year. And they have right now three or four bills, but there's no text involved. Wait, but what? Titles. <laughs> Wait, so there are we bills do this but, all the time. <laughs> oh, so they just like file blank yeah. bills and then fill in the they bits file later. blank bills, yeah, with a title, and like the, the titles are eliminating abortion act of 2018, or what's another one? Oklahoma anti-abortion act of 2018. So I'm fairly certain those will be fetal homicide, like just total abortion ban. It's prohibited in any case. Doesn't matter if uh, if it's an emergency or not. Any medical emergency, rape, incest. It's just still going to be prohibited and normally there's a felony involved. They're probably filed blank too because they're just waiting to copy and paste from like Americans United for Life or something. Like they just don't actually have that language yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Mad Lib bills. That's what I like to call them. It's just fill in the blanks, you know, it's, it's very frustrating and irritating. What else, what other kind of bands are we looking at this year, Brie? Oh, we also have, you mentioned we have uh, some D&E bands again. And- DNA stands for dilation and evacuation, uh-huh. which is the common uh, second trimester procedure. Uh, we have three states right now. I think it's Colorado, Florida, and then our anti-choice Democrats out of Rhode Island. Um, they've all introduced bans this year. And we sh- Rhode Island Democrats, call your people in, please. <laughs> Honestly, like what is going on there? I don't understand that state. <laughs> Well, I, I do because actually my best friend from law school is from there, but I don't understand the politics. <laughs> right. I do understand yeah. the ocean. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have, for next, we also have a couple fetal heartbeat bands again. Um, we just have and those. those are, uh, are those basically like the six week bands, essentially? Yes, the six week, yeah. As soon, okay. as, the, as soon as you can detect a fetal heartbeat, which can be as early as six weeks. Um, okay. Mississippi, Missouri, and Tennessee want to ban abortion at that point. Lovely. Yeah. It seems like maybe Mississippi and Missouri are, are some uh, repeat customers here and are looking to ban abortion any way, shape, or form they can. Oh, yes. Every year. Every single year. It's uh, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, I think, are the top three. So what are, you know, I know it's early to say trends and stuff, but what are a few things that um, are jumping out? Because you've mentioned we already have a whole whole load of bills filed and pre-filed so far this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, This so far, I think, yeah, it's still pretty early, but I think maybe late bills with later abortion or anything around Mm -hmm. later abortion doesn't necessarily have to mean it's prohibiting. But that seems to be the most right now. I mean, we have a lot of trap bills, but that's just kind of all over the place sometimes. But I know that even in Congress is pushing, I believe, the Born Alive Infant Protection Act right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and states seem to be copying that. So we have, I think, five. I think Alaska, New Jersey, New Mexico, Rhode Island, and West Virginia have a similar bill to what's happening in, in Congress with the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. But then we also have three states, uh, Maryland, New Hampshire, and New Mexico who are trying to ban abortion at viability. When you say ban um, ban abortion at viability, you mean before viability or as soon as viability attaches whatever that determination is by the doctor, then they ban abortion at that point? Uh, yes, at that point. Okay. And they kind of, some of them specify, uh, sometimes they'll specify like viability is at 24 weeks. Okay. Um, but other times they won't and they'll just kind of leave it up to interpretation or what the physician decides is viability or thinks or determines however they determine it okay. to be. Gotcha. Gotcha. There's quite a few bills in that area. So leaning towards that, at least this year. 
Oh, wonderful. Is there anything else that we should be um, keeping an eye out for? Anything new this year? We do. Uh, we have the Mississippi. Mississippi decided to, uh, with the help of, I believe, Alliance Defending Freedom, oh. they have introduced a 15-week ban. A 15-week ban. Are they just pulling numbers out of a hat at this point or what? They they might be. <laughs> and, you know, for, for our listeners who might not be in the know, Alliance Defending Freedom is a litigation mill. They, t- they typically bring lawsuits or, you know, help defend um, these kinds of restrictions. They have not historically, at least not real visibly, been in the business of pushing legislation. So that, this is something that's remarkable and, and I think uh, important to pay attention to. And I think just to uh, tack on to that, you know, we're seeing some of the folks at ADF are popping up in uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. So I imagine that might be part of the reason that ADF is getting into the lobbying business and, and not just sticking to their normal litigation against abortion and whatnot. So yeah, ADF and the Trump administration have a real cozy relationship. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in Mississippi with this. Uh, Probably nothing good. No, nothing good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there anything else that you want to talk about, Bree? Any other questions we have for her, Jess? How do you like just no, I don't actually want to get into it. <laughs> I was gonna ask you how like you just managed to deal and then that starts to sound really sad. So, <laughs> what is terrible. your life like? <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, ridiculous, all of the above to me that we are just barely into 2018 and we already have all of these kinds of laws on the books and introduced and we know that there's going to be more down the pipes. Um, I just want to say thank you for stepping out from behind the curtains of the legislative tracker and helping explain all of it um, that we've seen so far to our listeners and also say thank you for all of the amazing work that you do for us at Rewire because seriously, listeners, like... Brie is the magic that makes things happen. So, yay, Brie. <laughs> yay, Brie. Thanks. <laughs> Too kind. Team effort. <laughs> <laughs> team effort. Team legal. Woohoo! <laughs> Do you like really smart podcasting and reporting on health, rights, and justice? Do you believe that a free and independent press is essential to democracy, especially since the Trump administration is escalating its attacks on both? I mean, you're listening to Boom Lawyered, so I'm pretty sure that you do, which is great. And now you can help Rewire do more of this important work with just a few clicks, and it won't cost you a dime. Credo Mobile is America's only progressive phone company, and they back that up with cold, hard cash. Each month, they invite three nonprofits to share a funding pool of more than $150,000. And this month, they've chosen Rewire as one of those recipients. And we are psyched. Each group gets a share of the funding based on how many votes it receives, with a bonus of up to $20,000 for the winning group. With your vote, Rewire can fund more Boom Lawyered episodes, more fearless reporting on the anti-health and anti-immigration efforts of the Trump administration, more exposés on the power and money behind those efforts, and lots of other vital reporting. So go to rewire.news slash credo. From there, we link to Credo's sign-up and voting pages where you can cast a vote for Rewire that will help us break even more stories, do even more shows, and work on your behalf as independent media. Again, rewire.news slash Credo, C-R-E-D-O. A few clicks and boom, you just helped Credo fund our journalism. Thanks for voting, everyone. 
Oh my God, Amani, we are not even a full two months into 2018 and Republicans are full on gangbusters with these abortion restrictions that we all know should be ruled unconstitutional. Yeah, they should be, but they don't really care because their game is to end Roe or at least render it totally useless. Right. I mean, Republicans talk a lot about overturning Roe v. Wade. They talk about it all the time. Trump promised Supreme Court justices that would do just that. And with these new restrictions, anti-abortion advocates are certainly searching for their test case to see if they can end legal abortion. But before we can talk about conservatives' latest strategy to try and gut abortion rights entirely, we should probably give some background on the legal hurdles they have to clear first. Good idea. Okay. So everyone probably remembers Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt, right? That's the 2016 Supreme Court case involving Texas's trap laws. Let's walk through it just a little bit, though. What happened in Whole Woman's Health? Okay, so Whole Woman's Health is a clinic in Texas operated by the extraordinarily badass Amy Hagstrom Miller. That clinic challenged a couple of provisions in one of the most sweeping abortion bills in the country, Texas HB2. The bill required, among other things, doctors to maintain admitting privileges at a local hospital, which is preposterous because, as we all know, we don't really follow the country doctor form of medicine anymore. If you have some sort of complication due to an abortion or due to anything, the EMT will show up at your house and take you to the nearest hospital. They're not going to necessarily take you directly to your specific doctor. But also, the bill required (laughs) clinics to be retrofitted to serve as ambulatory surgical centers, which are basically mini hospitals, even though abortions are an extremely safe procedure, and even if the clinic only performs medication abortion. So to, to describe how ridiculous this is, sometimes these clinics would be forced to pay millions and millions of dollars to, for example, widen their hallways so that two gurneys could pass by as they do in a hospital. But if you're doing medical abortions, there's no surgery, there's no gurney, there's no point. Yeah. I mean, other requirements were things like put a water fountain in each exam room, you know? And I mean, think about this if you're in an older building, which a lot of these clinics were, um, you know, that's, you mentioned millions of dollars. Some of that's also just not architecturally feasible. Like you're not taking down the whole damn building. Right. And what do you need a water fountain for? Just get one of those sparklets water coolers or something or just provide (laughs) bottled water. I mean, these these restrictions or, or these regulations are clearly intended to target abortion providers and to put them out of business. And Texas claimed that the legislation was for the purposes of protecting the health and safety of pregnant people. But the Supreme Court in Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt said, nope, because Texas couldn't show that trying to close clinics, which they full on admitted they were trying to do, they couldn't show that trying to close these clinics actually helped patients. And in keeping with her usual awesomeness, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said laws that, quote, do little or nothing for health, but rather strew impediments to abortion cannot survive judicial inspection, close quote. In other words, if a state says that a restriction promotes women's health and safety, that state is going to have to prove that to the courts. Now, this case was a big loss for anti-choice advocates, and it seems that this year they have changed tactics. This new round of legislation is not necessarily about protecting women's health and safety, but this legislation has lawmakers arguing that they are passing these laws to promote the state's interest in advancing fetal life. Whoa, hold up. States have a legal interest in advancing fetal life? Yes, they do. Uh, We talk about the right to an abortion in Roe v. Wade, but the decision says a lot more 
including that states can legislate to, quote, advance potential life. We should walk through Roe a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, so Roe says that a person has the right to choose to have an abortion before viability without undue interference from the state. That's where we get the legal holding that a state can't ban abortion before viability. Legal holding, listeners, is lawyer talk for rule. Right. So Roe also gives us some language on what the courts mean when they talk about fetal viability. Kind of. Rose says viability means the potential of the fetus to survive outside the uterus after birth, and not just for a second or two. Survival outside the pregnant person can also include surviving with the assistance of technology, like a respirator, for example. Rose says that after viability, though, states can pass laws that restrict abortion access so long as those restrictions contain some kind of exception for pregnancies that put a person's health and life at risk. Okay, that was a lot. So let's recap a little bit. First, states have an interest in protecting both the health and safety of a pregnant person, and they also have an interest in advancing fetal life. States can't ban abortion before viability. They just can't. But states can ban abortion after viability if there is some kind of exception for the life of a pregnant person. And that, listeners, is Roe in a nutshell. So we should probably talk about another Supreme Court decision, Gonzalez v. Carhartt. Now, when I say that Gonzalez was a disaster of a ruling, that's an understatement. Gonzalez was a challenge to the federal quote-unquote partial birth abortion ban. Wait, why did you say quote-unquote? What's the scare quotes? Well, because partial birth, quote-unquote, partial birth, is a non-medical term that anti-choicers concocted in order to make the procedure at issue what's called intact dilation and extraction, sound particularly horrible. So Gonzalez is the decision that made junk science a thing in abortion regulations. So basically what happened is that Nebraska passed a dilation and extraction ban, a quote-unquote partial birth abortion ban, in an effort essentially to stop one provider, a doctor named Leroy Carhartt, from performing this type of procedure. The Nebraska law didn't have a health exception, and if there's one tenet of abortion jurisprudence that the Supreme Court holds dear, or at least it did, and we'll explain that in a minute, it's that abortion restrictions must have a health exception. And the Nebraska statute didn't have one. Right. It did not have a health exception. So Dr. Leroy Carhart challenged the law, and in 2003, in a case called Stenberg v. Carhart, the Supreme Court struck down Nebraska's law. Now, I'm going to give you one guess as to why that is. Because it didn't have a health exception and you need a goddamn health exception? Bingo. And at this point, anti-choicers had their knickers in a twist about DNX bans, these so-called partial birth abortion bans, and they made such a fuss about it that the same year the Stenberg decision came out, in 2003, Congress passed the quote-unquote Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, and Dr. Carhartt immediately challenged it. I'm going to give you a guess as to why. Oh my God, I think I've got it because it didn't have a health exception? It did not have a health exception. But I thought abortion restrictions had to have a health exception. Well, the court certainly ruled that in Stenberg. But as we're going to talk about in a bit, the court got it really, really wrong really, really quickly. So I'm going to flip the script and ask you a question, since, again, you are our resident court whisperer. And my question is, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> how, how could the court strike down the Nebraska law because it didn't have a health exception, but then uphold the federal law when it also did not have a health exception? Uh, what the fuck seems to be about the most appropriate question to ask here, um, because the answer is mostly hocus pocus. That's how. 
From a purely legal standpoint, Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, said the federal law was different than the Nebraska law in two important ways that made it constitutional. First, Kennedy said that Congress issued findings of fact here that supported the need for the legislation. And basically what that means is that it was enough for Kennedy and the majority that Congress had held hearings and decided that it wanted the legislation. And this is important because those hearings had experts testifying that the federal ban was not grounded in science and would, in fact, hurt patients. Kennedy and the majority said that that didn't matter, though, and that lawmakers were free to choose sides in the abortion debate and legislate accordingly, so long as whatever findings of fact they had could explain that choice. We'll talk more about why this is total garbage in a minute. But second, Kennedy also said that Congress had more narrowly defined the procedure so that it would be clear what exactly a doctor could and couldn't do in performing a later abortion. Kennedy said that this mattered because the Nebraska law was written broadly enough that it could have possibly banned both DNX and DNE abortions, which is why it needed a health exception in the Nebraska law. The federal law, he said, was narrower, so it didn't need that health exception, even though, and this is maddening, the federal law is a pre-viability ban, and abortion rights law clearly says no pre-viability bans without an exception. But really, honestly, the difference is Kennedy writing the majority opinion. He's not a fan of abortion at all, and that fact is apparent all over the decision, like this little tidbit. Quote, while we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, it seems unexceptionable to conclude some women come to regret the choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. End quote. Wait, 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 wait just a minute. Did he actually say there's no reliable data, but that women regret aborting, quote unquote, infant life? Yep, he sure did. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that's Gonzalez. It's the decision that upheld a pre-viability abortion ban without a health exception and invited conservative lawmakers to gin up whatever kind of evidence they could to support their assault on abortion rights. It's the Gonzalez decision that really gave lawmakers the green light to go bananas legislating against abortion rights and set the stage for the kinds of bans we're seeing today. So Kennedy essentially invited junk science into the courtroom, and he certainly signaled to anti-choicers that it might be a good idea to find some data to support his claims. And thus, an entire industry of anti-abortion junk science was born, including a brand new syndrome from which millions of women were apparently suffering, post-abortion syndrome. What the hell is post-abortion syndrome? So these folks claim that abortion is so traumatizing that, for example, women get depressed, they have suicide ideations, they develop eating disorders, drug and alcohol abuse, and that sort of thing. They even point to studies that supposedly support the existence of post-abortion syndrome. Now, these aren't peer-reviewed studies, of course, because the people are not reputable scientists. Many of these studies have been debunked, primarily because people like Priscilla Coleman, who is one of the leading researchers behind the completely concocted post-abortion syndrome, didn't control for mental health and previous experience with violence when they conducted their study. So when they conducted this study, they just asked women, did you have an abortion? and did you not have an abortion? They didn't ask women if they had any history of 
sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, whether they had any pre-existing mental health conditions that might make them more predisposed to suicide ideation, eating disorders, and all of these other things that were supposedly a result of abortion, but might also be the result of other issues that they didn't ask about. Oh my God, that's that's not science. I don't know what it is, but that is not science. Yeah, it's really not science. And, and it's true that abortion is difficult for some women, but for some women, it's not. And it does a disservice to everyone to paint women as inherently guilty or traumatized because of some genetic predisposition to motherhood. These people are terrible, and it's not just fake mental health syndromes that they're concocting either. For years, anti-choicers have claimed that abortion causes breast cancer. But it doesn't. No. No, 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 it does not. But that has not stopped anti-choicers from erecting literal brick-and-mortar institutions dedicated to cultivating and spreading this kind of junk science. Uh, You know the one that annoys me the most is the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is the research arm of the, wait for it, Susan B. Anthony Foundation. Yes, there's an anti-choice organization named after Susan freaking B. Anthony. And now as a black woman, I have my own issues with Susan B. Anthony, but how dare they? Oh my God, seriously. There was also a push to gather women, so-called abortion survivors, to tell their stories. And then there are so-called experts who have been popping up in litigation for decades, people like Vincent Rue, to whom the state of Texas paid thousands of dollars to serve as an expert, even though he had been discredited decades before. Oh man, Vincent Rue is terrible. He is. He's the worst, and he just will not go away. Okay, so during the trial phase of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that's the 1992 case that reaffirmed and established the undue burden test. Wait, wait, wait. We should probably explain what the undue burden test is. Oh, that's a good call. Sure. So the court in Casey said that a state can't place an undue burden on the right to an abortion. And an undue burden is one that puts a substantial obstacle in front of a patient seeking an abortion. And that's basically the test for most of these state laws. Are they an undue burden? So anyway, the judge in Casey discredited Rue and said that his testimony was, and I quote, based primarily, if not solely, upon his limited clinical experience and therefore not credible. His testimony, the court went on to say, was devoid of any analytical force and scientific rigor. Ouch. Yikes. The court also said that Rue's, quote, admitted personal opposition to abortion, even in cases of rape and incest, suggests a possible personal bias. Wow, that's pretty damning. It is really damning. Courts aren't generally like judges are pretty reserved unless it's really bad. And so to say something like basically call him flat out biased is really bad. (laughs) So why the hell then did Texas pay him a bunch of money to consult on HB2? You know, it's amazing how far white male mediocrity will get you in this country. I mean, it's basically the answer. It really is. So so to recap, after Congress banned DNX abortions, so-called partial birth abortions, and provided no exception for the health of the pregnant person, the court in Gonzalez v. Carhartt said, sure, that's fine. Even though three years prior, the court in Stenberg struck down Nebraska's DNX ban because it didn't have a health exception. And because of Kennedy's judicial intemperance, anti-choicers are clamoring to concoct as much junk science as they can to appeal to Kennedy. Kennedy's abortion sads. Which brings us to 2018 and the lawsuits teed up to challenge Roe. 
So we have all of these unconstitutional abortion bans floating around in state legislatures and the courts. None of them are based in arguments that the laws are designed to protect pregnant people. They have more or less lost the ability to make that argument after whole women's health unless they have actual real evidence to link their proposed law to advances in patient safety. So the big legal test now is just how far will the courts let anti-choice lawmakers go in legislating for the rights of a developing pregnancy over the rights of that pregnant person? We've got some cases in the pipeline that are going to help answer that question. All right. So there's active litigation in the federal courts around both Texas's and Arkansas's D&E bans. Federal courts there have blocked those laws from taking effect. But the very conservative Fifth and Eighth Circuit Courts of Appeals will hear arguments later this year. Who knows what will happen? Meanwhile, in Kansas, the Kansas Supreme Court could rule literally any day now on the constitutionality of that state's ban. Oy vey. You know, there's also a 20-week abortion ban challenge pending in federal court in North Carolina. North Carolina passed a 20-week abortion ban in 1973, decades before the National Right to Life drafted its first model 20-week abortion ban, which was based on junk science that a fetus can feel pain at 20 weeks. And since Nebraska passed that bill in 2011, 19 more states have passed 20-week bans that are tied to fetal pain. Hold on. I want to walk through this a little bit. Okay, so North Carolina's 20-week ban isn't tied to fetal pain. Right. And what do you mean by tied to fetal pain anyway? Okay, so Nebraska passed the 20-week ban back in 2011. It was the first to pass the National Right to Life's model bill, which they called the, quote, Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. That bill name is ridiculous. It really is. But anti-choicers are really good when it comes to picking inflammatory bill names, right? It's what they did in Gonzalez v. Carhartt when they turned the medical name of an abortion procedure, intact dilation and extraction, into, quote-unquote, partial birth abortion to essentially make that particular procedure sound like infanticide. And they're doing the same thing with the so-called dismemberment abortions. Exactly. You just mentioned some of the DNE ban litigation, and that's what dismemberment abortions are, dilation and extraction. So basically what anti-choicers are trying to do is to pull a Gonzalez v. Carhartt with the DNE bans by calling them dismemberment abortions. So can we make Carhartt a verb? Can we say that they're Carharting DNE bans? But what about Stenberg v. Carhartt? Would that be Carharting? I, I don't know. I see your point. But when people say Carhartt, I always think of Gonzalez v. Carhartt, not Stenberg v. Carhartt. But your point is well taken. Another example of how lawyers are the worst. The worst. Boom. Lawyer. Okay, so what's up with this 20-week ban litigation in North Carolina? Right. So North Carolina's ban has nothing to do with fetal pain. It has nothing to do with the so-called Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. And, you know, for years I have wondered and often pestered you about this, Jess, because you're a court whisperer and a sage. About what, <laughs> I mean, you are. You, you really are. And I don't think you give yourself enough credit. But I've wondered why it is that no one was suing over these clearly unconstitutional bans. Why are they clearly unconstitutional, though? Well, because like we talked about earlier, states can't ban pre-viability abortions and viability doesn't attach until around 24 weeks. Although right now in the North Carolina litigation, they've basically conceded, like both sides have conceded that that number is 22. But 22 is still more than 20. So what the hell? But, you know, I've literally been frustrated for years about the lack of litigation over these bans. But if I'm going to put on my lawyer thinking cap for a minute, it makes sense that North Carolina would be the first test case in this litigation, right? Because the issues are so simple. North Carolina bans abortion at 20 weeks. Roe says you can't ban pre-viability abortions. 
Fetuses are not viable at 20 weeks. Therefore, North Carolina's ban is unconstitutional. Now, had the Center for Reproductive Rights, and these are the folks that are litigating North Carolina's 20-week ban, had they filed a lawsuit challenging one of the bans tied to fetal pain, a relatively simple case would become a battle of experts at trial. What do you mean by that? Well, if the basis for banning abortion at 20 weeks is fetal pain, then a state that ties their ban to fetal pain would have to submit evidence that fetuses can feel pain at 20 weeks. And plaintiffs, people challenging that ban, would have to submit evidence that fetuses can't feel pain at 20 weeks. And experts on both sides would disagree, and the court would have to figure out which experts are credible and which experts aren't. And that's a real pain in the ass. And I imagine that plaintiffs would rather have a simple case without having to delve into the science of fetal pain. I imagine that you're right on that. But they might have to if Congress passes and Trump eventually signs a federal 20-week ban, which is shockingly also known as the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. Now, I know it's terrible. This bill is so bad. I mean, first of all, it says that um, a fetus feels pain no later than 20 weeks. So obviously setting up a stage for it to be earlier than that. Right. There's a provision that would only allow uh, folks who have a pregnancy by uh, rape to be able to fit in the rape exception if they have reported their rape or go through mandatory pregnancy counseling. These people are monsters. That's terrible. First of all, I mean, especially in the midst of the Me Too movement that we're having right now in this conversation about rape culture, the idea that you're going to force a person that is raped to go report it and go through pregnancy counseling before they can even, you know, be eligible for an abortion seems wildly cruel and irresponsible. It's terrible. And I mean, I guess the good news is, is that it doesn't look like there's the votes to actually pass this legislation. It's got to clear that 60 vote hurdle. And even though it looks like a few Democrats are going to join with the Republicans, thanks a lot, folks. But it looks like for now, that's not going to pass. The bad news is, well, I think the rest is all really the bad news. (laughs) The bad news is everything else. (laughs) Except for when we hear from listeners. That's the best. And so after the break, we're going to read your reviews. I don't think we have any, though. We don't have reviews? Okay, so. (laughs) Hang on, let me check. Okay, listeners, we love you. You love us. What's the deal with no reviews? You're breaking our hearts. Oh, so sad. So sad. I want to cry. That's the, I mean, we're not really crying, but we really do enjoy hearing from you and we enjoy reading the reviews out loud. So, you know, open up that laptop and slap on some reviews, five star reviews. Get into it. Come on, people. Don't let us down. And while you're at it, don't forget you can join our Facebook group too, where we keep the conversation going. Yes. Boom Lawyered Facebook group. Get in it. Get on it. Get under it, maybe. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I think that's a Rihanna song. Oh, boy. Boom Lawyered is created and hosted by Imani Gandhi and Jessica Mason Piclo. The show is produced by Nora Hurley. Our executive producer is Mark Folletti, and Rewire's editor in chief is Jody Jacobson. 